pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, and we thank you, God, how you intend to instruct us to shepherd our hearts through your word, by your Holy Spirit. You promised, Lord, that through your spirit, you would illumine our minds and you would teach us your word. And so we ask this morning that you would do that very thing. We pray, Father, that you would be exalted during our time this morning, not only in the way that we've sung and attributed worth and glory to you and the way that we've given, but Lord, also in the way that we now listen and uh, even in the way that I preach and proclaim your word. May our ears be anointed. May my lips be anointed, Father, in my mind. Uh, Lord, may you guard my lips from error. And, oh God, may you speak to us boldly. May you um, embolden our faith. And uh, may you work in our lives so that we are brought nearer to your throne and that your spirit would work in our midst freely today is our prayer. Now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12 will be our text this morning. Originally, I had kind of bracketed off this text to go all the way through verse 20. But as I began studying it this week and preparing, it became obvious to me that we just wouldn't be able to do this passage justice by walking through it all in one step. So we may even go two more uh, messages and look at verses 13 through 16 or 17 and then verses 18 through 20. Uh, But this morning, our focus is chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. And the title of the message is Every Believer's Battle, Standing Against the Enemy. Dr. David referenced this earlier with the theme of our service being spiritual warfare and talked about the need for us as believers to be soldiers of Christ. And this is truly what God's Word calls us to as believers. I can remember a time... Um, even well, even this week, uh, experiencing uh, spiritual warfare and what I think is the battle that believers walk through, um, and sometimes we're more aware, we're more keenly aware of spiritual warfare that's ongoing around us, or even in our lives, than we are at other times. And this particular week has been one of those weeks for me, coming off of VBS and just having a different routine uh, for the week. Um, I woke up Friday morning with a pretty bad scratchy throat and then Saturday morning I woke up and it was really really bad to where I thought I was going hoarse and so I went and I got a shot this week I went and got a shot on Saturday and and shared with several people and they began praying and asking the Lord just to sustain me and to be able to preach and so by God's grace I stand before you even realizing and recognizing that God has been at work uh, this week so that I wouldn't be silenced and so that I would be able to stand here and preach because as you know Drew's on vacation so I couldn't very well call him and say, hey, Drew, I'm hoarse, you've got to preach. So by God's grace, I stand here before you. But, but I can even remember early on in my ministry when I was at First Baptist Pollock, one of the things that we would do on a weekly basis is we would go out and visit people in the neighborhood, and there were some rental, uh, rental houses across the street from the church, uh, and occasionally we would go by there and visit because new people were constantly moving in and moving out, and 
there was one particular time where me and an associate pastor, we had gone over and we had knocked on the door uh, of this home. And immediately as they opened the door and greeted us and asked us to come in, when we stepped through the house, I was aware immediately of spiritual bondage and oppression that was in that place. There were two women there at the house, um, and there was just a real sense of great oppression. Uh, and so in sometimes, some instances, you don't know uh, whether you need to uh, investigate that and confront it or whether you need to run. Uh, and so this was one of those instances where I felt like no good was going to come of any conversation we might have in trying to share the gospel. And so we quickly, uh, we quickly made our exit from the home. There was another time when I was there uh, where a family had uh, asked, they called and asked if we would exercise demons from a home. And uh, I said, well, I've never done that before, and I don't have any training in doing that, but I'd be happy to come and speak with you and talk to you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think God's powerful enough that if you are surrendering your life to him, that demons will scatter. And so I said, and so they asked again about exercising demons from their home, and I said, I, I really have no practice in that. Maybe you should call the Catholic Church down the street. And they said, well, we already called them, and they told us to call you. <laughs> so uh, I said, well, I will come and sit down and visit with you. And so anyway, we, me and a couple of members of the church, we went and we sat down in the home and visited and shared the gospel. And we prayed there in the home. Um, it was interesting and certainly felt a sense, there was a, there was a sense of God's presence that went with us even in the midst of battle, even in the midst of spiritual warfare that was happening. I say all that to say Paul speaks here in Ephesians chapter 6 to talk about just how real spiritual warfare is. We get to this point in the letter of Ephesians, and, and in fact, Paul, some people take Ephesians and divide it into three, three sections. They, they title one section to sit, the next section of chapters one through three to sit and to gain wisdom. Uh, the, they title the next section to walk, chapters four through chapter six, verse nine. And then the next section they title stand because of Paul's exhortation here to the church to stand. To stand in the strength and the power of God's might. Another would call it to, to walk in wealth and then or to, to, to see a division first of wealth. That is God's riches that he has given us as a church. And then, then to walk in the blessings and the, the wealth that God has given us as believers. Uh, and then to finally fall into this last section or enter this last, last section of warfare. One commentator says... If we're walking worthy of our calling in humility rather than pride, in unity rather than divisiveness, in the new self rather than the old, in love rather than lust, in light rather than darkness, in wisdom rather than foolishness, in, in fullness of the spirit rather than in drunkenness, and in mutual submission rather than self-serving independence, then we can be absolutely certain we will have opposition and conflict because the reality is for the believer as we grow closer to Christ as we draw uh, more near and experience his power at work in and through our lives the opposition and the attacks of the enemy are going to increase and they're going to grow 
So from chapter 4, verse 1 on, Paul has been urging the church to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to live out this call that God has called the church, his believers to. That is to say that the church is to be different, look different than the world, act different than the world, and be filled with a hope and a joy. And even as we saw in Sunday school, right, a happiness that comes from Christ, our Savior. Five times in chapters 4 through 6, he highlights this verb that we're to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. And so the spirit-filled Christian life is to live wisely in the world, and we're to do this by being filled with the Spirit. And then we saw from chapter 5, verse 22, through chapter 6, verse 4, that this impacts, first and foremost, it impacts our family relationships, right? Marriage, husband and wife relationship, 522 through 533. Parent-child relationship, chapter 6, verses 1 through verse 4. And then the employee-employer relationship. All of this has impacted, the gospel impacts everything. And all this has really led to what's called the climax of the letter here. And in this climax of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it's like he pulls the curtain back. And as he pulls it back, he's, he's describing to us those things which are unseeable, almost as if we can see what he's speaking about. The battle imagery of spiritual warfare has a shock value. It has a shock value, especially, I think, for the casual, complacent Christianity of the modern, western, secularized world. And so we see in this text this morning this challenge for us to recognize this reality that is happening in our midst. Even here this morning, there is a battle being waged by the demons of hell. And in every worship place across America and across this world, it's happening. In this moment, there's a battle. He, Satan's vying for our attention, trying to distract us from the things of God, trying to distract us from a holy life, trying to distract us from giving worship and recognizing God and, and not doubting God's goodness. This is something that brothers and sisters in Uganda are very aware of. Uh, in our last trip, we had quite a discussion about spiritual warfare and demonic possession even as they experience it uh, in their communities. But here, here we're not so concerned with spiritual warfare. And Paul is telling us that there's an all-out war continually being waged in the heavens. We can choose to turn a blind eye to the spiritual warfare that's recorded throughout Scripture. But we would be foolish to miss the reality that spiritual warfare is going on all around us. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, an angel was sent to Daniel in response to Daniel's prayers. And in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, it says that he was opposed by a demon, by the prince of Persia, for 21 days. And he had to be assisted by the archangel Michael before he could be delivered, before he could be delivered from there and, and go to Daniel and speak with Daniel. Jude 9 records that Michael, the archangel, had a battle with Satan himself over the body of Moses. Paul encountered demonic opposition in Acts chapter 16. When he's walking through preaching the gospel and a slave girl with a spirit of divination is coming behind him and saying, behold, these men speak 
from God. They are prophets of the Most High God. Until finally, after a couple of days, Paul gets, Paul gets tired of it, and he turns and he casts the demon out. And because he casts the demon out, those who are making profit by this girl, they come and they begin opposing him. One of the points that we see there is there aren't any friendly demons. They weren't doing a service for the kingdom of God by announcing who Paul and Silas were. They were drawing negative attention. It goes on to Paul and Silas were thrown in prison in Acts chapter 19 when all of the sorcerers come and they bring their magic books and begin throwing them in a fire and burning them. They begin burning their, uh, their small idols for the temple of Artemis and Diane. And those who were part of the trade guild, who were blacksmiths that were making these false idols, their business was tanking. And so they get upset and get the whole city, right? This is when he comes into Ephesus to preach the gospel to the people of Ephesus. And the, this is the book that we're studying as we've walked through it. And so they get in this uproar and they begin shouting and they want to throw Paul and Silas in prison. And eventually they are able to throw Paul and Silas in prison. This is the opposition that the gospel that believers face when they move forward in advancing the gospel of the kingdom of God. And we can be assured that Satan does not sit idly by. He is not in some lull. Well, that was a, a, a bit of a long introduction, so let us turn to verse 10 in chapter 6 and follow along as I read from verses 10 through 12. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and, the, and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul speaks to the church here in significant words, encouraging the church to see this cosmic battle that is happening all around them. And so this morning, here's what I want us to see. By walking in Christ's power, believers are strengthened to stand in spiritual battle against Satan's schemes. By walking in Christ's power, believers are strengthened to stand in spiritual battle against Satan's schemes. Because the cosmic battle is real. I want to begin by looking at the last part of verse 11 and the beginning of verse 12. I want to begin by exhorting us, don't think that, a bat, that the battle is against others and not against you. Don't get caught up thinking why would Satan or his ministering spirits engage me in a battle? I want to challenge you this morning that if, if that's your mindset, even at the outset here, if that's your mindset, I can assure you that Satan has already engaged you into complacency. Satan's strategy in battle is to attack the everyday and the mundane activities of life. For Adam and Eve, this this showed sufficient. Satan attacked the best of all of God's basic provisions in their marriage. And he used the best thing for them to bring about the worst thing 
for them. Paul's just, just finished discussing the implications of the gospel in family, marriage, and children, and in the, the workplace that happens in the home. And so I want us to see that we're not just dealing with mere flesh and blood here. We're, we're dealing with the spiritual forces of evil that seek to wreak havoc in every area of our lives. And so the first thing that I think we need to see this morning is that we need to know our enemy intently. We see this in verse 11, the second part of verse 11, 11b. He says, so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. So we know who our enemy is. Our enemy is the devil. It is Satan. Have you ever thought about how well Jesus knew Satan? When he was an angel in heaven before he got cast down from heaven for his rebellion and revolt. I mean, he had to he had to have some pretty incredible knowledge, right, of Satan. I mean, he created him. In Matthew, chapter four, verses one through eleven, Jesus was led out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil And as he begins his earthly ministry, he enters the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days. And it says that the tempter came to him and he tempted him after he was 40 days after 40 days of fasting, when he was very hungry and said to him, turn that stone into bread. Right. This was the temptation that Satan introduced to Jesus. Did Jesus have the power to turn the stone into bread? Absolutely. He could have turned the stone into bread. But Jesus responds to Satan's temptation with what? The word of God. And he says, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then Satan takes him again and he takes him to the top of the temple and said, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, trying to cast doubt, throw yourself down. And Jesus again responds to him. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test again with the word of God. Then the devil took him to the high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And in the midst of showing him all the kingdoms of the world, he said to him, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give these to you. And Jesus responds, Satan, be gone. For the word says, you shall worship the Lord your God and only serve him. And at that moment, the devil left him and the angels from God came and ministered to him. But notice what the tempter does. Notice the ploy of the enemy. He comes at Jesus in his weakest moment. And he subverts the truth and twists the truth of God's word in order to get Jesus to step outside of God's will. The devil's a schemer. He's a deceiver. He's our adversary. That's what the word Satan means. Satan means adversary. And throughout his earthly ministry, Satan planted obstacles along the way, trying to subvert God's will through Christ, even working through Mary at the miracle of Cana when he multiplies the wine, right? She said, Jesus, they're out of wine. And he says to her, woman, why are you concerning me with this? It's not yet my time. Even to the point of 
one of his closest followers and the disciple Peter in Matthew chapter 16, where Peter boldly stands up and says, I won't let them take you. And and Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you've not set your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Right. Satan came to again, came to Jesus again in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke chapter 22, verse 44. And as Jesus was in such great agony, sweating drops of blood over these intense moments, Satan whispering in his ear. Jesus having to surrender his very life, knowing the cross that lie before him and in great agony, sweating these drops of blood, he was surrendering his will to the father's will and he was giving up his life for the life of the world. And so in John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus calls the devil the prince of the world. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So as we consider the tactics and the schemes of the devil, we need to realize that he's intentional. That he's got a strategy. And part of his strategy is to destroy the believer. But it's also to, to, to lead the world astray. To keep them blinded from the truth of God. To keep them doubting who God is. And doubting God's goodness. Who do you think was behind last night's tragedy when 50 people were ruthlessly gunned down? And 40 others were wounded at the nightclub, the gay nightclub in Orlando. This is the work of Satan, our adversary. He's a friend of no one. Jesus says in John 8, 44, that he's a murderer. He's the father of lies. And he spews his lies throughout the world. He spews his lies throughout society, throughout culture. He'll do anything and everything he can to malign the testimony of the church and to malign the testimony of the believer. He's out to steal and to kill and to destroy. He's not loyal. He deceives the church through false teachers who spew the venom of the prosperity gospel. He deceives the world through materialistic appeasement, offering things that promise satisfaction, but things that ultimately never deliver. Things that seek to satisfy the wayward cravings of the flesh, but but ultimately bring people to bondage. He distorts the goodness of God, turning the good gifts of God into sensual pleasures that corrupt and and that degrade and that leave a person empty and hopeless and helpless. Our enemy is not in a lull. And we don't have a pass from his attacks. We need to know him and his ways intently. We need to know that he's powerful. And that's the second point, letter B. He has supernatural power. We see that in verse 12. Look at what Paul says. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan possesses a supernatural power. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. He knows his time is short. 
Look at Revelation 12, 12. Write it down and read it later. He wants to he wants to persecute the church. He wants to destroy and oppress all of God's people so they don't live out. We don't live out victorious lives. Satan and all his demons of hell oppose God's kingdom and anyone who claims allegiance to Christ. He's powerful. He took a third of the stars out of the heaven with a swipe of his tail when he was cast down to earth. Revelation 12, 4. These stars are the angels of heaven that Satan led in revolt against God. And they are many. And though Satan's not omnipresent, nor is he omniscient, all-knowing, nor is he omnipotent, all-powerful, he wants to be like God and mimics God through deploying his demons who are at work in the celestial sphere, even above us, he's skilled beyond human ability. Listen, think about this. He has studied humanity since its creation, figuring out a way to attack and to destroy. He's subversive, he's our mortal foe. His battle plan is laid out. He knows the depravity of man's condition, and he knows how to subtly appeal to our weaknesses. Throughout the ages since creation, Satan has wounded God's children from Adam to Moses uh, to Moses to Noah to Abraham to David to Peter. The list could go on and on throughout Christendom. So let us not be foolish, church, to think that we're exempt from his attacks, are strong enough to overcome his powers. Jesus told Peter in Luke twenty two thirty one, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. But Christ has prayed for you. He's prayed for us. That we wouldn't fall prey to his tactics. That we wouldn't be sifted like wheat. But that we would be strengthened. And that we would walk with Christ. And that when we fall, we would return quickly. The battle, it's... Hand to hand. That's what he means when he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our wrestling, it's a spiritual battle. It's against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's, it's hand to hand combat, combat. It's in the trenches. It's fought on knees in prayer. It's fought through obedient lifestyles. It's, th- it's fought through putting sin and the old self away so that we walk in the new self. It's fought in memorizing Scripture and setting our mind on the things above where Christ is, as Colossians 3 says. And so he says that we battle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, against spiritual authorities, against rulers, against against all of this wickedness. But he's not talking about God's dwelling in the heavenly places. He's talking about the celestial sphere even above us. He's already spoken of this in Chapter 1, verse 21, where, where he says, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's where Christ is. He's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Or chapter 2, verse 2, and it says, here's, here's how we're sold into slavery in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, right? Our lives, we were dead in trespasses and sins, chapter 2, verse 1, and we were by nature children of wrath. 
We once walked in this way, under the sway and the power of the evil one. That's not the way that it has to be for all who are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 10, he says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So here's what God's doing through the church as he redeems the church and sends the church on mission. He is making his perfect will known through the church above or in front of all of the heavenly authorities even before all the demons, all of Satan's emissaries, all of his ministers, they look at the church and they see God's plan coming to fulfillment and they hate it and they do everything they can to slow the church down and to back the church up. That's why Paul says, stand firm. Stand your ground. Don't give way. Don't backpedal. Don't get caught up, believer. Stand firm. Strengthen the armor that God has has given us in Christ. The fruits of Christ's victory have not yet been fully realized, but as believers and ambassadors for Christ, we are embattled and we're engaging the enemy, standing firm, realizing that his tactics are cunning, realizing that he's a deceiver and a destroyer. So what must we do to overcome him? How are we, church, believer, how are you to stand firm against the schemes of his strategy? Because they are many. Here's how. If believers are to stand against our enemy, we must realize the strength of Christ is our only hope. And if we're going to do this, we must know our Savior intimately. Verse 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Jesus gave us the perfect model of dependence in His humanity. Matthew 4, it was God's word by which He refuted Satan and His attacks, right? This is Christ in his humanity at his weakest point doing spiritual battle against the enemy. Satan himself as he's come to the wilderness to confront him and to thwart God's plan and God's will. And what does he do in response to Satan's tactic? He replies with God's word. He allows God's word to do the battle. He's equipped himself. He knows the word. He is the word, right? But it's the word that's doing the battle. So should it be in the life of the believer, if we're going to fend off and fight off and stand firm in our stand our ground and fight off Satan's attacks, church, we must know the word. We must be ready to battle him with the word. We're commanded to depend upon Christ because he supplies the strength of the Christian life. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We're not commanded to make ourselves strong. It's Christ who actually strengthens the believer. All who are in Christ Jesus come to Christ for his strengthening because he alone is able to supply our need in spiritual warfare against Satan and his schemes. Christ is the source of the believer's strength. And so for the believer, this comes from a deep place of trust and confidence in God our Savior. 
one writer says, a Christian who no longer has a struggle, a Christian who no longer has to struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, is a Christian who has fallen either into sin or into complacency. A Christian who has no conflict is a Christian who has retreated from the front lines of service. It is his mighty power, Christ's mighty power that equips us. What is the mighty power of Christ? Chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 tell us. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked, God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? Believers have been given this incredible power. But here's the question. How does the believer appropriate this power of Christ's resurrection? Because if we're honest, and if you're like me, there are often times when I don't feel like I have this power. I get caught up in sin and I feel like, man, I'm just running in sin here and I'm spinning my wheels. And I know Christ has already won the victory, but I feel like I'm losing the battle. So how do we live, believer, in a way that we appropriate this power of Christ into our lives? I think believers appropriate this power through the Holy Spirit. The power of God that was manifested in Christ's resurrection and exaltation is now available to the believer. That's what he's saying here in verses 19 to 20 of chapter 1. And we're also strengthened through the Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 16 says that according to the riches of His glory, that He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. It is the Holy Spirit of God that strengthens us as believers inwardly in order to stand firm. And it's God's power that is at work in our midst, verse 20 of chapter 3 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, right? To him be glory in the church. This is connected even with the church. We as believers, as we're engaging in this battle day by day, even moment by moment, we're also assimilating together as the body of Christ, encouraging one another. That's why in Hebrews chapter 10 the writer of Hebrews exhorts us not to forsake the assembling together of the body. We need this. We need one another. We need testimonies of brothers and sisters like we've heard this morning to encourage us, even in the midst of tithing, when we would say, man, things are tight this month, and I don't know if I can give, but then we, we hear an, an encouraging testimony that says, no, this is God's will that we would do, that we would do this. And so we, we hear testimonies from other believers. We encourage one another. We walk together. The believer who depends on the Lord lives in continual contact and fellowship with the sovereign supernatural power of Christ because he has sovereign supernatural power. Satan has supernatural power, but Christ has sovereign supernatural power. Look at what he says in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Notice he says the whole armor. The whole armor of God is the armor which God supplies. Every piece of armor is needed to strengthen the Christian to stand firm against Satan's schemes. And putting on the armor of God is a once-for-all action, believer. 
It happens when we convert, when we come to faith in Christ. And listen, we don't put on the armor of God and then take off the armor of God when we feel like it. We don't go home at the end of the day and take it off like we would a garment. No, we, we put on the armor of God at one point and at one time. And every piece of this armor is significant and important for the believer. Because all of life for the believer is spiritual warfare. It's the same as putting on the new self in chapter 4, verse 24, when he said we're created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Believers put on, get this, believers put on the very characteristics of God himself. We'll see this next week, the, the armor, but these characteristics of God are truth. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the word of God, and then he ends with prayer. Paul's already shown us how how God in Christ has graciously bestowed these spiritual blessings to us as God's children. And so this is even an extension of, of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, where he tells us as believers that we are to be imitators of God as beloved children. This is God's design and desire for us, that we would be clothed with the whole armor of God. You see, the only way that the believer can stand against the schemes of the devil is being clothed with this divine armor. Standing. Standing means not retreating. Standing means not surrendering. Standing means facing the evil opposition of the devil. And it means prevailing against his opposition. When temptations come and when doubts arise and they assail us, the believer is equipped to stand against the devil's schemes as she casts herself upon God in complete and utter dependence. You see, this is the call to dependent living. Martin Luther in the hymn that he wrote called the battle hymn of the Reformation, a mighty fortress is our it's called the mighty fortress is our God, but it's referred to as the battle hymn of the Reformation. He said, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. And then the third verse, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. It is the word of Christ. Believer, God has equipped us, and he's called us to walk with this fullness of of his blessing and his presence and his spirit. And he's called us to be clothed with the armor of God and to see the schemes and the methods and the craftiness of Satan that he has this strategy and he's about ruining and wreaking havoc on the lives of believers. One Puritan said, he will tell us a hundred true things in order to get us to listen to, to the one hundred and first thing he says, the line by which he traps us. What are the schemes and methods of Satan? They are many. They're stumbling blocks. 
1 Thessalonians 2.18. He seeks to employ, uh, to exploit intimate human relationships and to destroy the testimony of believers. You see that throughout Scripture, 1 Corinthians 7.5, even here in Ephesians. He's a master of sensuality. He seeks to gain a foothold in the lives of believers. He wants us to have outbursts of uncontrolled anger, Ephesians 4.26, or speak falsehood, Ephesians 4.25, or steal, Ephesians 4.28, or have unwholesome talk, verse 29. He wants to provide an opportunity for any conduct that's characteristic of the old life to surface so that we ruin our testimony. This passage is a dire warning to those who think, who think they can be good enough to earn God's favor and grace. Saying that Satan has you right where he wants you. That he has deceived you into thinking that you can earn God's favor. And it's instructive to believers. The only way to prevail against the schemes of the devil is to put on God's armor. We must put it on so that we can stand firm against the enemy. We put on God's armor when we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and are born again. But God's armor equips us beyond the initial trust of the gospel. We stand firm through obedient living that only happens through Scripture-dominated, Holy Spirit-empowered lives. And so, church, we must be a people who set our minds upon Christ and seek to live in His power. And we do this. We do this by walking closely to Christ, by heeding the Spirit's counsel, by having holy, righteous lives. And so by walking in Christ's power, believers are strengthened to stand in spiritual battle against Satan's schemes. I want to challenge you this morning if you've not been living vigilantly and intently in this regard, being aware of Satan's schemes and how he wants to trap you as a believer, how he wants to hinder you and destroy you. I want to challenge you to spend some time in prayer asking the Lord to open your eyes to see how God is at work in your life and how Satan is trying to trip you up. Maybe it's to reveal sin in your life that is currently happening that you're unaware of. Maybe for you it means being vigilant and, and becoming uh, more disciplined in, in areas of spiritual growth in your life. Maybe for you it looks like spending more time in prayer. Maybe for you this morning it looks like for the first time surrendering your life to Jesus Christ because you realize that Satan does have a plan and he is at work hindering you from following God. And so you would begin by confessing your sin to the Lord and repenting of your sin and placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you that I want to speak with you about what it means to have a relationship with Christ. And I'll certainly be down here at the front if you want to come forward and speak to me or if you want to grab me after service and say, hey, let's talk more about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, to be empowered by him, to have this armor that he gives. I want you to know that I'm here and I want to talk to you about it. Let me pray for us, and you respond as the Lord leads. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And I pray for each of us that we would be wise to Satan's schemes. And Father, that you would protect us by your Holy Spirit. 
I pray, God, that you would lead us to know the truth of your word and to respond with the truth of your word. And, Lord, that you would help us to stand firm with your armor on so that we might live faithfully and obediently following you. Strengthen us now, Lord, to respond as you're leading us by your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? <laughs>